0: Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. Live from Santa Monica, California, it is the show that is currently contemplating who is going to win this billionaire cage match and who will I put my money on. Elon versus Mark Zuckerberg. It is official. They are lining it up. Also, I have a special guest in the studio. Jody Weber is joining us today to discuss True Crime Thursday and maybe even talk a little bit about this Natalia Grace documentary that has me so perplexed. Super excited. Mover Nation, what's going on? I'm your host, Collier Landry. This is Moving Past Trauma Live. Let's get into it.
1: Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal
0: When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Mover Nation, so excited to have all you here starting uh this episode actually on a solemn note um it has been sort of we've all come to this conclusion that unfortunately the five crew members of the titan ocean gate um submarine submerged vessel they believe that it has imploded underneath the surface of the atlantic ocean uh it was on for those of you don't know it was on a sort of uh i don't know joyride expedition i don't know what you would call it but people had paid a quarter of a million dollars to go on board this submarine vessel that was going down to look at the wreckage of the titanic thirteen thousand feet below the surface of the atlantic ocean it has been sort of the main topic of conversation in the last 96 hours around the world because many countries have been rushing to partake and help rescue these lost souls. And unfortunately they have come to the conclusion because the vessel would have run out of oxygen by now that it most likely imploded a few hours after it submerged in its mission. So our hearts go out to the families and um, those who are reconciling with this. There's been a lot of speculation. Uh, I believe it was uh, Cardi B uh, that weighed in on the stepson of one of the billionaires, uh, Hamish, uh, I, I don't know his last name, Hamish Higgins or something like that, uh, who was a British billionaire and part of one of the co-founders of this particular venture, Ocean Gate, um, who attended a Blink-182 concert and people thought that he should be at home, um, should be at home dealing with the fact that uh, his stepfather was missing. I don't know here's one of the things that we talk about on this program a lot, which is trauma related obviously is um, you know, people cope with trauma and traumatic events in their own unique way. And I personally think sitting and dwelling on something like that for, you know, a while is, is not necessarily, I think that everyone reacts to things how they should and how they can cope and deal with the things. So another thing to keep in mind too, in discussing the trauma surrounding all this is the, You know the the tireless efforts of rescue workers involved with the u.s coast guard the u.s navy the canadian uh there's french ships that came out because this this happened about 400 miles off the coast of newfoundland so there were something like 25 vessels in the area all actively participating in this search along with rescue workers in the air using sonar capabilities to try to find these individuals and they are also coming to terms with the fact that they were hoping for a positive outcome in all of this. And now they're having to reconcile what their experience is and going through all of that. So we got to keep that in mind um, when talking about all of this. Uh, but I want to bring on—so uh, anyways, praying for all those families and uh, the victims who who perished in this unfortunate incident— On that note, I want to bring in my, you guys loved her last week. She is the host of the caught in my web podcast on Patreon. Her name is Jody Weber. She is a former FBI agent and journalist, and she is here to share what is going on in the world of true crime. I'm so honored to have her be a part of this program again, let me bring her on.
1: Hi, Collier.
0: Hi, Jody. How are you?
1: I'm well, thanks. How are you?
0: Good. Now we get to the point of the program where I put on my my headphones. All and right. Very are. good. Very good. You're not going to
1: sing at me, are you?
0: I'm not going to I'm not going sing uh, that song that you wouldn't want me to sing. Okay.
1: Okay, good. It'd be the third time this week. <laughs> it,
0: would be. it would be the third not time this I'm week. Not that I'm
1: counting. But...
0: Right. Very true. Yes, you did text message me and said, it's war. You sang it's that war. in the live yesterday. I did. It,
1: it's fighting words. Fighting words, Collier.
0: But as I share with you, it, I, I am a much bigger fan of the Rayleigh Montaigne version, which...
1: Yes, I looked that up.
0: Yes. It, it's fantastic, right? It's also uh, a whole different vibe because the first line of the song is cocaine. So it's yes, a whole different yes. vibe. It's,
1: it's all about a drug addict. Yes, yes it is. I found that
0: out. <laughs> yes, so, it yes, is. You've
1: educated me.
0: And the Pacific Northwest. Drug addiction, Pacific Northwest. Two things that sometimes seem to go hand in hand, unfortunately. Um, but thank you so much for joining the program. I'm really hoping, you know, that not only would you catch us up to what's going on in the world of true crime and what you're up to on your program, but also if you could explain to me this whole Natalia Grace thing, because. Oh, well, I'm I'm covering it tomorrow.
1: I'm covering it tomorrow on Caught in My Web. Every Friday during the summer, we cover a different true crime documentary. And tomorrow it just so happens that the Curious Case of Natalia Grace is up. And I'll tell you, I found it very disturbing, that documentary uh, for multiple reasons. And for those who don't know, it's about um, a young girl or woman, which is debatable, um, who has the specific kind of dwarfism that um, this American family adopted when they were told she was six years old. Well, that soon came into question because, and giving her a bath within the first few hours of having her, they discovered she had pubic hair and she had a period. So, you know six-year-olds don't have that. So the question was, how old is she? And then after that, there were many, many questions about um, her mental behavior, her psychology. Um, According to the family, she was very threatening to them, threatened them while they were sleeping. The mother alleged that she had poisoned her drink. The mother alleged she had tried to push her into an electric fence. And so you hear all these things. And according to the family, they are trying to get her some sort of psychological examination, some sort of diagnosis, some sort of gauge as to what her actual age may be. They try to go back to the adoption agency, try to go back to the family that had her prior to them to ascertain what do you know, what information were you given? Because Natalia originally was born in the Ukraine, at least that is what we've all been told. So there were many, many questions from the jump. Well, as it goes on through this documentary, you find out that this family that adopted Natalia, they're not all they claim to be either. There's a lot of questions about their conduct and their behavior. When the docuseries starts, they are very proud of their family units, their their homes, their cars, their... um, materialistic item, shall you
0: say? You, you talked about the Lamborghini in the driveway, and I'm just like, oh, you
1: got to be kidding. Yeah, me. Like, I almost turned cares? it off the first two minutes yeah, um, because exactly. he was so obnoxious, the oh, father. Yeah, yeah. And he's very um, dramatic, shall we say. Um, yes. And he paints this picture at the onset that they are just this all-American family. They have this loving marriage. They have this... Um, son who suffers from autism and is a prodigy and yeah. was a subject of 60 minutes. And so within the first few minutes, I immediately just honed in on the fact that they like attention, they like money, they like material items. And I'm like, there's going to be some financial fraud in here somewhere. That was my instant instinct is that, okay, did they adopt this young woman with special needs because they would be able to get some sort of disability funding through social security? That was your thought. That was my thought initially. And then certainly as the series goes on, you see that they claim that there's all these threats and that they don't feel safe with her and they're worried about their other children. And so ultimately what they do is they go to the court and they go to a judge, and they're able to convince a judge with the reports that they have from various doctors and therapists that Natalia most likely is not six years old, that she's much older than what they've been told. Well, the judge figures out through this convoluted formula that he believes she's much older, and I believe he made her 22. So therefore, because she was now legally an adult, according to this judge's decision they were no longer financially responsible for her so they put her into this apartment and basically go like this well then that's where i really think we got the most objective view as to what natalia's behavior was like because we hear from the different residents of this apartment complex and many of them had legitimate concerns about her and her behavior Um, and certainly she had some grooming issues and you wanted you, you asked yourself okay is she mentally disturbed and that's why she doesn't groom or is she physically not able sure. to take care of herself because of her dwarfism and does she have the special accommodations that she would need based on her height and, and yeah. that sort of thing. So there were a lot of questions about that and you could see these neighbors really struggled. Like yes. they felt sorry for her, but yet they were also on guard because she, she literally stalked some of them. Yes. And so <laughs> there was one neighbor and I told you about this the other night that she came into the apartment of another neighbor and was kind of harassing her grandsons. And it was this chihuahua who, like, scared, scared, scared Natalia and got the attention of an adult and said, hey, you don't belong in here. So after so many come out, oh, nice product placement. You there.
0: like that product? Superhero that was very chihuahua. Very there we smooth. go. Yes,
1: here we go. That's mine too. Uh, So after all these complaints from all these neighbors, the leasing company was like, okay, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to evict you. You know, this is just, we can't have all these people making complaints. And there have been complaints about her propositioning in an inappropriate sexual manner. Um, some of the children in the area. So that Mm -hmm. was concerning as well. So then what this family does is they move her to another city, to another apartment on a second floor with multiple stairs, with, you know, sinks and bathtubs and things she couldn't reach. And so, and then they moved to Canada because their oldest son was in school there. And so there's a lot of questions as to, you know, whether she's a child or not is one issue, but also do they have an obligation just because she is a disabled person, a person with significant disabilities, physical disabilities, do they have a moral, ethical and legal obligation to help her because she can't care for herself? So that really raised a lot of questions. And then as we find out, as this docuseries goes along, This family had a history of domestic violence. Yeah. The mother claimed that Natalia had tried to push her into an electronic fence. The witnesses at this farm where this alleged incident took place all said, no, it did not happen. Yeah. The oldest son said that he was forced to urinate on Natalia in her bed. Um, The father claimed that the mother had been very abusive to Natalia, made her stand against a wall for hours at a time to Mm -hmm. the point where she would defecate on herself um, and that she would, be very physically abusive to her. Um, The marriage disintegrated. Um, The mother appeared to be quite prolific in her sexual activities online. And that seemed to really set the father off. And there appeared to be some alienation going on between the parents. And so while you question Natalia's mental health and what's going on with her, you also came away questioning the mental health of these parents and of this family. And I came away worried about these other children in that environment. So ultimately, they go to trial, and he's acquitted, the father's acquitted of all four charges. And then the mother, they drop the charges, they don't even go to trial on her. So it was very disturbing, In that I think it brings up the question of rehoming individuals with international adoptions. Yeah. And that's kind of where um, these foreign adoptions come in, and you don't necessarily go through legitimate adoption services. And you wonder if the motivation of these people is simply so that they can collect disability payments, that sort of thing, because it in this docu-series, you saw the father become very, very upset when some neighbors took custody of her and took her into their home. And then he was no longer allowed to collect that disability for her. Um, So, you know, it just really, really raises questions. And certainly recently in the Lori Vallow case, um, in the Harmony Montgomery case, we see a lot of situations where these children go missing and are killed and the families the perpetrators they keep collecting these welfare and social security benefits
0: yes yeah especially with lori vallow and it's um it's it's you know i think about situations like that where what is the what is the disability that they're collecting you know it can't be that much right to you know it ultimately seems that when they collect these payments that that leads to their eventual demise Mm -hmm. right um but these people were very disturbing and i you know i had fallen asleep watching it last night so i didn't get to see the chihuahua save the day even though that would have been the best part of you. all of this but <laughs> yes. but yeah it um it is um it was really really disturbing the way that right from jump like you said they're talking about money is like we had 3 over 300,000 in our bank account i had a lamborghini and he's like got this lifestyle and i'm just and I come from the Midwest, they're, they're in Indiana. And every time they relocate her, they're saying, well, it's a very upscale area of Indiana. <laughs> I'm like, it's Indiana, man, who cares? <laughs> like, it's, but it's very, it was very important for them to make these, these statements when being interviewed. And I just thought, ugh, gross.
1: It was really gross. It was really gross. And then at the end, speaking of gross, um, the mother apparently had an online sexual relationship with a man who also is a dwarf. And he claimed at the end of this documentary that, you know, you you're hearing about all the accusations the father makes against the mother and how abusive Mm -hmm. she was to Natalia. But of course, in the first few episodes, he's all, Natalia's possessed, Natalia's evil. And then all of a sudden, his story changes. And then it's like, well, Natalia was abused. Natalia was abused by her. Well, then at the end, it comes out, you never really hear from the mother, but with this man, this male dwarf that the mother had been allegedly communicating with online and had a sexual online relationship with, that man alleges the mother told him that the father had been sexually with Natalia. So you just don't know what to believe. And like I said, at the end, I, I was just, I was worried about the other kids in the house and I'm
0: worried 100%. that
1: whatever Natalia went through, either, either way, if she was abused, if she wasn't abused, but she's been through so many homes. If she was left alone, isolated in situations where she didn't have the proper or adequate um, accommodations that she needed,
0: yes, um, had yes. health
1: issues. I mean, there's trauma there. So she's going to yes. need some therapy for all that.
0: And also the way that they just discarded her in that apartment. Like, and I underst- Like she
1: was trash.
0: Like she, like was, she trash. was trash. And I don't care if the judge said that she was 22. I mean, what did they prove that she was a child or was she not a child? Or- her
1: mother, her biological mother from Ukraine, insisted. Yeah. She doubled down. She said she was born in 2003. Wow. So you just don't know. Now, when they compared her, they had that play date with that another girl who suffered from the same type of dwarfism and was allegedly six years old too. So when you see them side by side, it was clear Natalia was older than that girl. So that would tend to lead one to believe, okay, she at least is in her teenage years. She's gone through puberty. So, I mean, at earliest, when do girls go through puberty? Puberty at earliest, 10 Maybe (laughs) I think that's very early. Usually it's 12, 13, 14 in that range. So, even giving her the benefit of the doubt, let's say it was an early puberty at 12, you still can't leave a 12 year old to live by themselves in an apartment. (laughs) So, um, and certainly not one that has physical disabilities. You know, I mean, there weren't. I'm
0: sorry go ahead they didn't have any uh, yeah there's no ada accommodation or anything Exactly. exactly it's like they just honestly didn't give a rat's ass about her and they were angry about i mean obviously there's a slew of problems but even just in the very beginning of the documentary i'm just thinking to myself okay if you are affluent and you're living in indiana and you have all these possessions and you have this family what kind of example are you setting for your children when you discard someone i don't care if she's an adult you know, she has a disability and you have brought her into your home and I'm sorry, but you, can't, I feel like I'm not a parent, but I feel like you've taken on that responsibility in a way to at least see that she's somehow taken care of because she can't take care of herself. And then just to throw her and then they made it everyone else's problem. And those people as neighbors seemed to be very compassionate towards her, even though they were creeped out. They were also like, we were looking at her and they would drop off groceries and she's trying Mm -hmm. to carry them in. I remember seeing a video of her pulling a a, a dumpster, like a little Mm -hmm. bin for the trash and then telling the dad, I took the trash out, you know, as if, like I, I don't understand. I don't understand how any human being can do that.
1: Well, and I also thought, you know, it was a big issue, at least with the adopted mother, that she was having these bathroom accidents. But to sure. me, I viewed that as a sign of trauma, that this this girl or woman, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you believe her age to be, she had been through so much trauma through the relocation of, you know, first being given up for adoption, then in foster care in the Ukraine, then adopted by another American family who kept her for less than a year or so, dropped her off in Florida at this adoption company, washed their hands of her. Then she goes to the Barnett's. They're getting rid of her, dumping her off in an apartment. No wonder the girl's having bathroom accidents or, or the young woman's having bathroom accidents. To me, that's a sign of trauma.
0: Absolutely. And, and let's not forget that they were also shopping her around to different online services and trying to take her, didn't they take her to a convention to try yes. to pawn her off on, on a couple that really genuinely felt compassion for her that were also um, suffered this, a, a similar disability and were trying to just be compassionate. And it, it's all very unfortunate. Now, to sort of segue, you said bathroom accidents and you mentioned Harmony Montgomery same thing what's going on
1: that is a very we we need to give a trigger warning for that story it is just absolutely um
0: trigger warning for this
1: trigger warning for that case for those unfamiliar um harmony montgomery was five years old and she went missing in 2019 but her disappearance wasn't discovered by law enforcement and state officials until 2021 so her family she comes from um parents who are no longer together. And her mother lost custody of her in February 2019 due to substance abuse issues. So she went to live with her father who had a very nomadic uh, lifestyle, married to a woman named Kayla, Harmony's stepmother. And they had, from what I've read, reports are conflicting, but they had either two or three children themselves. Mm -hmm. But they had um, a lot of domestic violence, in their family, a lot of, um, financial struggles. They were homeless living in and out of cars. So even though Harmony was given custody, given to the custody of her father, it was a very, very unstable family situation. And law enforcement was called to their home within 10 months, 10 times within months of Harmony going to live with him. So ultimately, ultimately, this past week, the probable cause affidavit was released, and her father was charged with her murder last October 2022. And so we finally got a look at the probable cause affidavit as to what law enforcement has learned. And ultimately, the way they broke this case open is the stepmother flipped on Harmony's father, Adam and what Kayla the stepmother said is that they were homeless living out of their car in 2019 and Harmony was having bathroom accidents and had two or three of them and the father would beat her in the car and on the third incident in December of 2019 she again had a potty accident and he but he was still driving the car and he turned around and just hit her three or four times with a closed fist. And after hitting her, they describe it in the probable cause affidavit that she moaned for about five minutes, and then the moaning ceased. And when they checked on her, she was not breathing. They didn't render aid. They didn't take her to a hospital. They did nothing to assist her. father got out of the car, put her body in a duffel bag in the truck and then they drove to an apartment complex and parked for 20 minutes. And then they would alternate keeping the body in the trunk and then putting the duffel bag out in the snow so that it would remain cold. And after after so many minutes or so, they discovered, okay, Harmony is really dead. So then they would alternate between the trunk and the snow with the snow, the purpose of that, to slow decomposition. Within a few days, they go to Kayla's mother's building apartment complex and they had transferred harmony's body to a cooler and kept her in a cooler in a communal hallway and then from there they moved to a home that was provided for families in transition and they put her remains in a ceiling vent and after so many days the neighbors started complaining about the smell and so law enforcement has completely torn apart the ceiling and collected it for DNA examination. After they removed her body from the ceiling vents, he then took it to work with him where he worked at a local restaurant and put it in the the freezer. And so she was there for a few days. And then ultimately he took her to their new residence and tried to break apart her body in the bathtub
0: with lime. Oh my goodness. Oh,
1: and then he right. and the stepmother, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 and the yeah, stepmother yeah. put her in Oof. another bag. And then he deliberately told the stepmother, I'm not going to tell you where I'm taking her. Well, he rented a U-Haul van and put Harmony in the U-Haul van. And law enforcement was able to track the U-Haul van to a bridge. And so they believe her body was potentially left in this marsh. So he has been charged with her murder. But Harmony has never been found. But back to the bathroom accidents, I believe that girl, I mean, here she is. They're homeless. They're living in a car. There's clearly violence in that family, instability. And, you know, the poor little girl's five years old. And she yeah. had some bathroom accidents. And every time she has a bathroom accident, her dad beats her. Well, you know, it's a vicious cycle and she was blind in one eye, she also had a handicap or a disability, and it's just tragic, it's just horrible what happened to that poor girl. So when I heard about the, the bathroom incidents with Natalia, and then you look at what happened with Harmony, you know, there certainly are parallels there.
0: Yeah. There was a, yeah, my great state of, the great state of Ohio had a had a situation that happened over this last weekend where a, a father took the lives of his three sons.
1: Yes, I just Exec- covered that today.
0: Execution style. Where did that happen again? I can't, uh, it's not Claremont far County. from where I grew up. Where, where yes. was it, Fairmont County?
1: Claire, Claire Claremont, Claire, Claremont, Claremont County. Yes, um, and, and just just horrifying. I mean, right in front of the mother. The daughter yes. ran down the block. Um, one little boy managed to run away, and he basically hunted down that little boy.
0: Oh, I didn't but, know that part.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So he, um, so it's just, it's sick. And, you know, you think about the trauma was, the mother. He,
0: he was crying in court, I believe. He did I cry saw in his, court. But they said he just snapped. But, yeah, no, back to the trauma of the mother, the mother... Um, did. Sorry, guys. This has gotten really. Gotten it's really, really <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It's been a bad
1: week for true crime. but know, They said in the latest court documents I reviewed from the lead prosecutor, they say he premeditated it. He didn't snap and that he had been planning it for months. But we don't know motive. We don't know. I mean, what? I mean, there's no logic. To annihilating, no. being, becoming a, fi- a family annihilator, and annihilating your children. But in my experience, typically, that's anger towards your spouse. That's anger towards your financial situation. That's anger towards something that has nothing at all to do with the children.
0: That's your professional experience. That when these things happen, that's, that's yeah. The cause there's something
1: it. else. Yes, it's not the children or anything that children are doing it's something else that is the trigger the impetus
0: interesting yeah i just um i mean of course i see ohio and i'm like oh great here here we are again (laughs) and in the news with ohio Uh, i you know i had almost wondered if there was a drug drug drug-related sort of thing going on with it too I hate. To. You know, we
1: haven't heard anything about that. They haven't said anything um, in all the descriptions from the first responder that was on scene that, you know, gave, issued the Miranda rights. Um, he apparently was cogent. He asked to have his wallet taken out of his back pocket. And the law enforcement officer that had cuffed him said, look, you have the right to remain silent. Why don't you use it? You know, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the law. I, f- I feel equally as bad for those first responders that, yeah, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to get that image out of their, their no. minds.
0: No. Right? And I think that's what we, we often forget about, too, is that these people, you know, <clears throat> that are involved in law enforcement that are these first responders or, or you know, uh, paramedics that come to the su- scenes of these, even a traffic accident it's something that they just can't erase from their memory at least not easily. Um, you know, do do you feel in your experience in law enforcement that, that we're seeing more and more cases like this, is there an uptick? or Are we just becoming more and more aware of them?
1: I think they're getting more coverage. Yeah. I think they're getting more coverage. I mean, there have been um murders within families for decades as yeah. you unfortunately know. Yeah. And it's just, you know, I think I think it's a combination of everything. I think it's a combination of more news channels, more online sources, more ways to learn about these incidents. I think there's a true crime fascination. I think there is just a lot of um, there's a lot of interest in why these things happen. Sure. And you know, certainly we've talked about the fact that it's one thing to talk about these things with a focus on, okay, how can we solve these cases? How can we help the victims? What can we learn from this to prevent this from happening again? and then there are those people that look at this as entertainment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's um and I think and I think it all it often delineates when you involve young children. When people start to go, okay, well, this isn't so entertaining anymore, right? As if that's where our that's, you know, where the line of demarcation exists between when a, a violent crime is is entertainment or whether it's, okay, now we gotta take this seriously.
1: Well, and I can even tell you from my subscribers because I put out episodes five days a week and I mm-hmm. have my diehard subscribers who listen day in and day out, no matter what the case is. And I know in the, this past week, I covered both Chad Dorman, the man in Ohio who annihilated his three sons and I covered Harmony Montgomery in the probable cause affidavit. And I got comments from my listeners like, Jody, I love you, but I had to turn it off. I couldn't listen anymore. It was just too much. And I also got that during Lori Valdedal. And I got that during um, the Murdoch trial when it was discussed, you know, how Paul was killed. Um, You know, people just when it comes to kids, you know, you just you don't want to hear this. You just it's horrible.
0: Yeah i mean i mean it it's horrible for everyone for sure um you know i think it, it, it and, and you're a mother right yes, <laughs> and yes. you know i i wonder if a lot of that is because they feel that their future was taken away um and they didn't have a chance you know i i i I often wonder about that you know oh
1: absolutely, I mean anytime you have anyone murdered, you know they're you know it's unfair. It's unjust. It's, you know, not, not, not lawful. It's not in abidance with any sort of, um, faith, um, in a higher power, you know, you know, treating people well. Um, so that I think bothers people at the core, but then when you look at the most vulnerable people, our children, our elderly, our disabled. Those are the ones, like here in Pittsburgh, when we had um, the massacre at the synagogue, there were a couple brothers there that had disabilities. And, you know, it was just, the whole incident was horrible. And it was the worst act of um, anti-Semitic violence in American history. But then on top of it, annihilate, you know two brothers who were just at the synagogue just trying to practice their faith and who were disabled oh it's just sick you know people just it really 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 bothered people
0: well it's terrifying you know look i live in los angeles there's a large jewish community here especially in sort of the around the west hollywood uh you know beverly hills beverly hills adjacent corridor um of where uh you know they are uh hasidic jews you know so Mm -hmm. very traditional practicing jew practicing the jewish faith and they were terrified people were terrified terrified of of just drive-bys things of that nature and a
1: copycat right
0: and um it's really really disturbing uh on a, a lighter note now you're you you said you're in pittsburgh because i kept telling I people i thought you were in georgia good so uh Steelers jokes will happen um not today <laughs> well, but good, at some because point because
1: i'm a cheese head i'm a packer <laughs> fan so but i am raising two two Steeler fans so yes I'm, I'm, uh,
0: in Pittsburgh. um i say that as someone who grew up grew up in ohio but did not root for the browns either so uh <laughs> but um yeah you know it, it's interesting and, and let me ask you something just for those of those that don't know because I, i'm a little bit ignorant on this because there's been a lot of you know um i, I believe wasn't the um uh the Delphi, the the killer for the Delt Richard. What does yeah name? Richard Allen?
1: We have to Richard Allen. Or, sorry, not the well killer, but
0: the but I'm sorry, the um the the, person the accused, who's accused the accused killer. uh there was a, a probable. What is a probable cause affidavit, and why is that so? Why is that so important, and why why do people want to know what's in that? What what is contained that? Because it was the same thing with the Koberger, with with Brian Koberger in the Idaho Four case. What there's a lot of talk about that, but I, I but I guess I'm curious if, if I get some clarity around what exactly that means.
1: Sure. That typically is your your document that contains all the probable cause to arrest this person or to charge this person. Okay. okay? So let's say um in the case of Koberger or, or Richard Allen, law enforcement knew this is our guy, this is the person, we have enough evidence now, we have enough probable cause to go to a judge and say, we need a warrant to arrest this person. And so then they go to the judge, they present, they write up under oath, the probable cause affidavit, and it lays out the facts of the investigation, not in totality. It doesn't have to contain every known fact to them, just enough that they have probable cause that this is the person that they they believe committed this crime. And then the judge either agrees or disagrees. And if the judge agrees, they issue the warrants and then law enforcement can arrest them, that person. And then that person is brought into court for an arraignment where the charges are read to them, they're explained to them, and then that person can enter a plea. And then typically they're entitled to a preliminary hearing. Now, what law enforcement can do is to avoid the preliminary hearing, like in the case of Coburger, they can go to a grand jury and obtain a grand jury indictment. And a grand jury indictment is secret It's a secret proceeding and the defense doesn't get to be there so basically the prosecutors just go before grand jury which is a a impaneled group of citizens and they present the evidence and then the grand jury decides yes we agree this person should be charged in this case
0: and that's what happened in the case of my father because there was a grand jury and i don't remember ever hearing about a probable cause affidavit but i was definitely present for the grand jury because well, I, I think it'd name. be very
1: interesting collier to get your court documents
0: yes that is something that i'm looking into uh but you know it costs money to get those but uh it, I, bet you, trial I, I bet you david
1: messmore would be able to help you with that
0: i should look at you knowing the names you've got you, oh, you watched got the doc you showed me notes. notes we're gonna have to talk about <laughs> yes, um yeah uh, I don't know if we'll get to that today or another time, but um, we're gonna have to talk about that. But um, yeah, it's it, it's 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 very it's very interesting to me. So thank you for explaining that because I look, I was reading this and I'm, I'm going, I don't really understand what this probable cause affidavit, but people were very anticipatory of it. Now, are those types of things? Do they is there a way that they can keep those under seal? seal.
1: Yes, they can. Like, for example, Harmony Montgomery's probable cause affidavit was kept under seal until just this past week. Um, The Koberger probable cause affidavit was kept under seal until he arrived back in Idaho. Um, We did see in the Richard Allen case right now, we've got documents under seal that the judge is supposed to unseal this week as far as what evidence um, the prosecution has and different pretrial motions. And everybody's just chomping at the bit to get a look at those documents because we want to see the strength of the prosecution case against Richard Allen for the murders of Liberty German and Abby Williams in Delphi, Indiana.
0: Yeah, and it took, you know, uh, Tara Newell and I had had interviewed uh, Kelsey German, um, uh, Liberty's sister, older sister, um, on our Survivor Squad podcast a few weeks ago and sort of you know, discuss with her, you know, five years it took to mm-hmm. find this suspect. What do you say to people that are, you know, oftentimes, and obviously I had you on and we released the episode and there are many opinions about law enforcement and law enforcement's policies and procedures mm-hmm. and whether or not they're, they're doing their job effectively uh, in the court of public opinion. But what goes into something how does law enforcement, I guess, quote, justify, for lack of a better word, taking five years to find a suspect? And is that necessarily, I mean, people look at that and go, that's a bad thing. But I, I think that people don't understand the complexities that go into building a You get a case. one shot. That's what, that's what I'm asking, that one shot.
1: That's right. And oftentimes I would remind people that, you could have an entire fleet of agents or detectives or police officers who are like, this is our guy or this is our girl and they did it and we we got them and, you know, pull the trigger. And it's the prosecutors, it's the prosecutors who are the ones who make the decision that say, look, I don't have enough evidence here. This could be a hiccup in front of a panel, a jury panel. It only takes one juror. So if there is reasonable doubt or something that, The prosecutor doesn't feel strong enough. If you pull the trigger and indict someone and go to trial and they're found not guilty, you can't charge them again. Yes. So that's the fear. That's the fear. So, you know, I know it was frustrating, especially in Delphi, Indiana, because law enforcement knew he was on that trail. They knew that back in 2017. They had that image of that person in that coat. And from what we're hearing, the wife knew he had that coat. His voice was on that tape. He worked in that community. It's a small town. Very small town. I have a feeling people were calling in about him. But people calling in isn't enough to arrest people. You have to have evidence of it. And, you know, I think The big thing we're waiting for with these documents to be unsealed is, okay, if you collected these ballistics, you found that unspent round near one of the bodies of one of the victims, why did it take you so long to get a search warrant for his property and match up that round having been expelled from his weapon? That's the connection everybody's wondering about. Why did it take so long? And we won't know until things are unsealed. And maybe not until January 8th when his trial starts.
0: Got it. So there was a firearm involved in that?
1: There, That's the link. That's the biggest link. And that is what the I defense is challenging. They found an unspent bullet. And they were able to find through the tool markings on that unspent bullet that it allegedly matches or it came from his six-hour weapon that he had, and given in an interview, he stated to law enforcement, as I believe his wife did, that he is the only one that has access to that weapon. So that's an expensive that,
0: weapon too. A six-hour oh, is an expensive yeah. weapon. Yeah, that's my first not, weapon,
1: service weapon. Well, that's is issued. That's issued, right? Hour. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's issues. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, in it, it, it. it still goes to just completely dumbfound me that people who commit who perpetrate these crimes think they're good they're going to get away with it nowadays i mean those girls were on snapchat apparently and that when you can trace things i mean 30 years ago you could trace around based upon markings in in a in a barrel of a weapon <laughs> right nowadays like how do you well, think that people just tried- don't care yeah. well
1: no i think i can tell you with teenagers and i think this with the ohio case as well i know having two teenagers myself they're on snapchat constantly so yeah. i'm not surprised that liberty and abby snapchatted and 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 snapped him the kids teenagers do that with that so um that was very smart but it's also very instinctual for teenagers to do that yeah. and i wouldn't be surprised given the geolocation data that's available on Snapchat. I mean, kids, college students, anyone can go on Snapchat and you can see where everybody is if they have their geolocator on. So, yes, and so I'm very curious, given these search warrants that went out to Snapchat in the Idaho case, if law enforcement has made a connection between Brian Koberger and one or more of the victims.
0: And is that in the probable cause document?
1: No, it is not. But we know through other documents that they have sealed and um, in some cases redacted that there have been search warrants that have gone out to search to Snapchat. But back to your point, Collier, as far as committing the perfect crime in this day and age, I think it's very difficult with DNA. I think it's very difficult with technology and geo-tracking data and geo-fencing warrants where you can determine, if you're law enforcement, what cell phones are in this area, what apps are in this area or use that can track you. Vehicles have that data. I mean, there's cameras everywhere we have amazon trucks and ups trucks everywhere with cameras i mean it's very very difficult to get away with the perfect crime
0: yeah it makes me it it it, it I, I often think about this in the I, I think ethics is probably the wrong word but sort of the um the decision uh j- like i i feel like you have to be on a mission of self-destruction, your, yourself to commit something like this because you can't get away with it in this day. I mean, I don't think you can. I, 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 there's just too much. I mean, look, I live in a, I also live in a major metropolitan area where there's cameras everywhere. I mean, literally, I told my friend the other day, they were visiting Beverly Hills and I said, you better not smoke a cigarette because they smoked. I said, you better not smoke a cigarette there. And they looked at me and they're, and they're like, why? And I said, because they have cameras and they'll write you a ticket for that. And they go, well, but I'll be in my car. I'm like, especially in your car. They, it's illegal to smoke in the city of Beverly Hills and they will issue you a ticket and it's like $500, <laughs> you know?
1: Well, I'll tell you. Now, we only know about the DNA that was found in the knife sheath in Idaho that, and the uh-huh. knife sheath was left behind. But there may be quite a bit of other DNA. We just don't know yet. But certainly, had they not had that knife sheath with the DNA, I mean, that was their big clue. That's what they used to, to get onto Koberger. It, it was certainly helped once they found out about the Elantra and they got the tip from Washington State University from the cop there that, hey, I found this Brian Koberger. He's got this Elantra. That helped, but certainly that DNA from that knife sheath was huge. Had they not had that, I don't think we would have had an arrest as quickly as we did.
0: Yeah, and I I, and I often wonder too, you know, and I've discussed this with other people that are sort of familiar and they understand, you know, uh, people being harassed or being <laughs> digitally pursued, if you will, for lack of a better word, um... Were stalked uh that there might have been some navigations of parasocial relationships that go that went awry uh in this particular case that maybe uh the perpetrator had relationships or was was following the the victims online
1: well with their knowledge or without we don't yeah, know yeah yeah you know that's yeah. it you know i mean certainly, you know, you can come across someone online and become fascinated. There are people yes. that that, that, <laughs> that has happened to, I'm as I'm sure you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> so, yes, um, I do. yes. So, you know, and I mean, not to laugh at it, because it can be quite serious <laughs> when uh, people are stalking. And of course, we don't have any indication that any of these victims in Idaho had any idea that, you know, there were 12 drive-bys, you know, prior sure. to November 13th. Yeah. Um, you Is know, that where, what it was? It was, You're well, we know from the probable cause affidavit that his phone pinged in the location of the crime scene at least 12 times prior
0: Wow. So he was thinking and it he out. He had an app,
1: He had a he had an exercise app, Strava I believe it's called, <laughs> that gives you I have that it, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that um gives geolocation data. And so one of yes, the things does. you know they want to look at is okay, where were you? Where were you? And certainly that will pinpoint when he was in close proximity to 1122
0: King Road. It's interesting that you mentioned Strava because they're a whole other, and a much more benign and friendlier case to discuss. Uh, I'm an avid mountain biker, and I use Strava because I go up in the mountains that are right behind me, over the hills and, and um, uh, whatever it is Brentwood, and the Palisades. And I go with my friends, and one of the things that, that Strava had released it was last year, the year before, is you can take the app and you can, because what was happening is, People were using the app so you and you put in your bike because you've got all your metrics and that's what makes these apps so cool. And they connect to the watch and the Garmin and everything, but you put in the type of bike you own. So if you know that they own X amount, X bike that's worth $15,000, you know, because mountain bikes are not cheap people were, were using the app to track the people f- to find out where they lived so they could, r- you know, they were running their cars into people's houses to break open the garage to steal all the bikes because like 50 grand worth of bikes. They can just heist them in a second. So there was people that were using Strava to commit crimes in that way to steal people's equipment.
1: Unreal. Uh, I also heard you can use it basically for social networking.
0: Like you yeah, can well, set
1: yourself up to, you know, I'm a biker or I'm a hiker or, and meet people uh, uh, 100%. that way.
0: A hundred percent. I mean, you could, I mean, I'm sure you could use it as a dating app because it does connect mm-hmm. to at least, I know it at least connects to Facebook. I don't normally post stuff, but it'll automatically, if I'm done swimming, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll hit the button and it'll automatically post it to Strava. And then my friends will be like, Oh, I like that. Or they give you kudos, but they give you on, you know, so people can follow your activities mm-hmm. and it's, it's interesting I've, and I've interviewed some other people on the program that specialize in this type of thing. And sometimes I don't like talking to them because it's like, okay, I just won't go outside and talk to people, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, it's, it's navigating those those parasocial relationships. What do you think, um, you know, what do you think with, the rise in all of this is a way and I I know we discussed this before we were talking about like ring cameras and things like that, but ways that people are protecting themselves. But again, you know, when you look at these, these cases and how people can be tracked, I mean, are we safe? I mean, you're, you're in law enforcement. I mean, or we're in law enforcement. Like
1: I get Ask that question all the time, especially mm-hmm. from my listeners. Like Jody, what can I do to protect myself? I recently got a lot of questions from women in the Portland area after yes. the story of the six women um, came out. And what's that, happening with
0: What's happening with that? By the way, I talked about that a little bit, but give me an update. This well, the true crime update.
1: Yes, the true crime update is, is that law enforcement, because these women were from um, basically the Portland metroplex area, but were found within 100 miles of each other, law enforcement from the various jurisdictions, the various counties, and police departments were talking to each other to see if they had similarities between the or amongst the victims. However, once that was announced that they're talking to each other, people kind of Took that and ran with it and said, Oh, there must be a serial killer. And so law enforcement had to back that up and say, Wait a minute, we're talking to each other to be proactive. But right now, we don't have anything definitive to say that these victims are in fact linked and that we have one perpetrator. Um, In fact, only one victim as of to my knowledge, has actually been confirmed to be a homicide to date. Now, since that initial announcement, it's my understanding that three victims do have some commonalities in that they had some sort of substance abuse issue going on, um, a history of on and off substance abuse. Some of them had been homeless for a time and that two of them had been childhood friends in elementary school. So when you look at that fact, it's highly unusual that given the population in a large metropolitan area like Portland to have two victims within such a short amount of time or such a short time span in such close proximity be found dead in similar areas, rural areas, wooded areas, and have physical characteristics that are similar in nature. Many of them are brunettes, same um, size, height. Um, That's concerning, it's concerning. But back to your question about safety, um, many of my listeners were asking, what do we do? And so the number one thing I would say is we all carry cell phones, have an app, have a 360, Life 360 app or some sort of similar thing where your family, your close friends, your intimate partners, they can keep track of where your location is and where you are. And that way, if you don't show up, you know, we can see where were you, um, that sort of thing. That's number one, a great, great device that if you have cell phone, doesn't cost you really any money. You can do that app for free. Um, and certainly when you have children going to colleges. I know a lot of 18 year olds are like, okay, mom and dad, see you later, bye. I don't want you tracking me and where I'm going at, you know, whatever time of night or where I'm staying for the night. At least have your college age children, um, have their friends be in a friend circle with one of those apps so their friends can track them so that they know where they are. Someone that they trust um, so that there is some sort of technological breadcrumb trail, so to speak. It's also a good idea. For women, have mace, have a whistle, have one of those um, alarms, panic alarms, all those kinds of things are just you know relatively inexpensive, but are good safety measures, especially if you do hike or you walk on trails and remote areas, things like that.
0: Yeah, uh, another thing I got to ask you because there was a lot of comments in the in the video. I have a very good friend of mine who. Um, who still is employed by the U S government. And he was former FBI. He now works for DHS. He's been there for well over 10 years, but uh, we sometimes will discuss conspiracy theories. (laughs) (laughs) And he says to me, uh, you know, we, we don't discuss them, but he, he says something that I just, I always go back to, which is, you know, call, he says, call your, you know, the notion of a conspiracy is, is predicated on the fact that the person who's committing and creating such conspiracy actually knows what they're doing. And he said in the terms of, in terms of the United States government, they can't even get my paycheck, right. Or as you so pointed out, they can't even fix the copy machine.
1: (laughs) The copy machines are down a lot in the government. I will say that. Um, Yeah. 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 There's no shortage of conspiracy theories.
0: And, and, you know, and and you were, you know, you were telling me you were when you were at the Pentagon uh, right after 9-11, you were picking up debris of airplanes.
1: Yes, yes. You know, that, um, quite frankly, that I think is one of the most um, sickening conspiracy theories to um, all the people, all the victims who perished, not only yeah. in the Pentagon, but on the plane that hit the Pentagon it's insulting to all the family members of this individuals it's insulting to all the law enforcement that have lost their lives due to the toxins that they inhaled at the Pentagon um, you know all the responders we picked up plain pieces for days amongst other things there so um, I, I really don't have any patience quite frankly for that conspiracy theory in particular just because I know what I did for 16 days and I definitely picked up pieces of a plane
0: yeah, it's um, it's it, it is it's, you know I was uh, filming in New York City, probably like 2017, 2018, and um, I was uh, in Little Italy, and I went past this fire station. <laughs> mm-hmm. They just happened to have the door open. It was probably like, you know nine, ten o'clock at night, and it was they they were first responders at the first tower.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, sure, that's right up the road from the
0: it, 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 precisely exactly right and they just uh it, you know i'm th- i'm getting misty thinking about it It just was something that i just you just kind of stand there and i was with this producer and i said hey and just like we just had this moment of like you know they lost like 12 guys in their battalion
1: <laughs> yes if i you know i would encourage ever, anyone if you have the opportunity to go to new york city go to the 9 11 museum it is um it's really a wonderful, wonderfully done, yeah. and um, really, really honors all um, the brave men and women, not only in law enforcement, but also just the citizens that helped, you know, complete strangers on that horrible day, um, and as well as here in Pennsylvania. About an hour and a half from where I live is the Flight 93 Memorial, and that is a wonderful, wonderful wonderful museum as well um to the heroics of of the passengers on flight 93 and what they did um to really save people on the ground in washington dc i mean they took control of that plane and um you know i don't think i think sometimes their story gets lost in you know the whole i i mean there's there were a lot of heroes that day a lot of heroes
0: absolutely Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, well, thank you for clarifying that. And I, I did want to do that because I did want to address those comments because I just thought, oh man, come on, like.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in fact, I, I can tell you, I definitely picked up pieces of a plane, and I can tell you the interior of the plane when you strip away, you know, the the sides that go around the windows and everything. When you get that taken off inside of the plane was green i'll even tell you that <laughs> because i mean we picked up just pieces for for yeah. you know two weeks
0: so. yeah which you know <laughs> and i was talking about this yesterday i was thinking about the submarine that went missing and uh it's
1: a tragedy
0: it just it really is it's just and i get it and a lot of people think oh these you know these people spent money and exorbitant amount of money to participate in this but you know look <laughs> there were people that got into boats, you know, hundreds of years ago that didn't even know if those things were going to work because they thought that they could get spices from the other side of this, whatever this vast ocean was, mm-hmm. and there was a better life there. So the foundation of human existence is exploration and curiosity and wanting to to, to explore the unknown and I get it. And maybe they should have left it alone. Sure. There's a plenty of stuff, but they didn't ask for this, (laughs) you know?
1: Well, it's just sad all the way around. It really is. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Um, you know, and you know, even I found it interesting watching my teenagers because I have two 16 year old twins and I was talking with my daughter and she's like, mom, I don't understand. It's not like they could look out a window and see the Titanic. It's not that they could get out and, you know, scuba dive down there at that level. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she was like, well, you know, the vessel would have had to spin and the pressure. And, you know, she's talking to me about it scientifically. Uh-huh. And I was thinking like, oh, well, that's fascinating. But she's like, why, why go down there if they could have sent, you know, an unmanned, device or or machine that could just get the video. She's like, if they're going down there in that capsule or submissible, and just looking at a screen anyways, why do they have to go down there? And I think that's kind of the question everyone has. Why did you have to go down there?
0: Yeah, I, I, I And I was actually surprised when I saw the photographs of it because I thought it had windows or something. I mean, ignorantly, like, right. why would it have windows? It's going 13,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. It would, it would you know, just crush. But um, I think that I was, you know, I, I think we're all wondering the same question that, you know, while we, you know, wouldn't have maybe made the same choice, but thinking of exactly there's, you know, there's so much that could have been done remotely
1: right Um, and i understand i understand from the um you know the the planet resource energy
0: component
1: of what we can learn by studying the bottom of the ocean i understand the valid um, argument for that yeah but i just i don't know if necessarily that what that's what this was you know i mean i think this was kind of a voyage to look at you know a place that was a grave for many yeah. people that died. Um, you know, so I I don't know. It, it just I, sat all the way around.
0: It sat all the way around. I did you know, also on the flip side, I, I saw that one of the passengers was seven, a 77 year old French explorer who was known as like Mr. Titanic or something, or it was, this was like his life's work. Kind of part of me was thinking, you know, well, now you've, you know, maybe, now you maybe, know. Maybe he was the person that was probably sitting there in the at that moment saying, uh, "I'm going where I want to be." Maybe, <laughs> perhaps I don't know. You know, maybe he thought he was going home. I don't know. Maybe that's me.
1: Well, Being
0: and maybe they holistic. didn't even know what happened. You know, and, maybe it was which is so bad. Really hoping. it's, I, just, yeah. it's just like yeah. that. <laughs> because well,
1: and that is a conversation I had with my daughter. I said, "Look, when the space shuttle Challenger blew up." You know, um, you know, that's what I thought of, like, what if, you know, what if it wasn't instantaneous? So, um,
0: I watched that live. I don't know about you.
1: Oh, I was in, I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, my friend, I remember when my, I was at lunch and my friend Troy, who's actually a stuntman, um, out in Hollywood I'll have to introduce you because he's in a ton of movies. <laughs> um, he oh, yeah. is the one that told me, he's like, "Joey, I just heard the Challenger blow up. I'm like, what? And sure enough, we went to American History the next, right after launch period, and they made an announcement.
0: Yeah, it was, it was something else. It was Definitely. something else. And a collective trauma. Oh,
1: right yes, yes, yes. And then, of course, it happened again with... Um, was it Columbia, I believe? Yeah. It was Columbia. Yeah. So, you know, these kinds of things, you know, we learn so much through exploration and, you know, certainly risk. There is incredible risk. But um, you know humans are not perfect and technology isn't perfect. And so, you know, that's the thing we always have to remember at the end of the day is that no matter how many great minds you put together and no matter how sophisticated the machinery or in, you know, this, you know, I don't know if the PlayStation controller is considered sophisticated, but it doesn't doesn't really matter, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, things can go wrong. No matter all the planning you put in, things can go wrong.
0: I mean, look, I I, I get that white people are like, it's a $30 controller. Look, I, I, I used to do Odyssey of the Mind, you know, when I was in high school and even when I was in grade school and we would build robots and we would build stuff to do. I mean, obviously it's a little bit different than it is nowadays, but you don't need, it's actually something like that is so simply designed that that's exactly what you need because there's not a lot to fail. Right. I mean, we still have Mm -hmm. airplanes that yes, they have sophisticated aeronautical, you know, systems and, and wind speed and all of that but the concept of the airplane is still two wings with ailerons and a tail. <laughs> it's, it has not fundamentally changed other than the software that guides it and and the systems to you know to understand wind speed and, and weather patterns. The, the concept is still the same. it's like the wheel like the wheel is very simple but it still works. so I mean to that it's like what it, if it had cost 100 dollars at Best Buy would that have been a better choice? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You know, if the batteries went dead, would that have been if it needed bat? I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of things, but again, it's it's an unfortunate loss of life, and it's unfortunate, I think, for all of the people who were. They are hoping, <laughs> hoping that their participation would lead to a different outcome.
1: Well, and you know, not to be um, insensitive, but people are like, well, what were the knocking noises then? You know, there were these knocking noises every half hour that they've reported they were hearing for the last two days or so. What's that? You know, are we going to find out what that was? Because, you know, I mean, what was what were they hearing? Um, You know, I think that's that's something, too, that people are asking
0: about. I I wonder if people have if, if people you because there are there are scientists that came out and said well it could be anything it could be a whale it could be this it could be that like you know the the knocking noises might have nothing to do with this at all maybe it didn't you know and it's and i think that's one of the things you know i did a ted talk about this you know when it comes to traumatic events we first of all you know we we try to wrap our heads around it with why did this happen and then we, we look to, you know, what, <laughs> we almost look to someone to blame or, 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 or something to, to grab onto, right? That, well, well they should I should have heard this. this to you,
1: and I said this to you after watching your documentary, that sometimes we try to apply logic to illogical situations. Yeah. And I I mean, I remember watching you trying so hard to talk to your dad. And I'm like, okay, you're trying to apply logic to an illogical person. And then you say to him, I'm a logical person. And that's what we do. We try to apply (laughs) logic to things and, you know, have reason and a meaning and just tell me why. And sometimes we don't get the answer to why.
0: I did say that. I remember that. <laughs> I'm, yes, a logical, yes. I'm a logical I was, person.
1: I literally was like, okay, Collier, <clears> you're trying <throat> to apply logic to an illogical situation. And then you literally came out and said it. So, yeah, um, yeah it was very evident.
0: We got to bring you back to, well, to to always give us our true crime updates, but also to, uh, we got to discuss the film because you have two or three pages of questions that we should go through. I am
1: about 10 pages,
0: but yes. Uh, oh, 10 pages. <laughs> fantastic. We will do that another time. So Jody Weber, where can uh, my audience find you?
1: You can find me on patreon.com. My podcast is called Caught in My Web.
0: Very, very simple. It is a podcast. It is on Patreon. My guest today is Jody Weber, and uh, she's fantastic. Former, former you, journalist, Collier. former FBI agent. Thank for you for joining the back. program. Oh, you're most certainly welcome. Thank you, Jody. Thanks. I want to say thank you to all my, excuse me. I want to say thank you to all my channel members, all my Patreon subscribers, all my channel members here on YouTube, all my subscribers, all of you who have come uh, super stickers, super chatters. Thank you all so much for joining the program. Um, I'm grateful your support helps make this possible. Check out merchandise. If you're interested And if you're interested in my film, a murder in Mansfield is also available in my store, which is down below here in the links. Or you can go to my website, com, to check out all of that. Uh, for now, I'm Collier Landry, and this is a live episode of Moving Past Trauma. I'll see y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to com forward slash support please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash your Landry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright Call Your Landry.